Welcome to Fitness for Consumption. This is a podcast with a very unique view on all things related to fitness. I'm Dr. Paul Juris, kinesiologist, research scientist, performance coach, author, and innovator. I'm here with my co-host, motor learning and clinical specialist, Gregory Gordon. Together, we have over 50 years of practical and scientific experience in things relating to fitness, performance, and health. Join us as we share our stories and experiences and take a deep dive into essential fitness concepts and some highly complex issues too. Don't worry, we promise to keep it practical. And you know what else we promise? We're not here to tell you what to think or what to do. There's enough of that going around. We're here to offer you a different perspective on fitness based on something called human movement science. Spend some time with us and you'll think more critically about what people are telling you. You'll sort through it all and understand it more completely and you'll become self-empowered to make better decisions for you or for those with whom you're working. Are you ready? Let's get started. Welcome to Fitness for Consumption. I'm Paul Juris, and I am here with my friend and co-host and colleague, Gregory Gordon. How's it going, Gigi? It is going okay, managing day by day here in the big, bad New York City. Yeah, I think everybody could pretty much say we're managing day by day. So <laughs> That's true. We, um, don't, we don't have the exclusivity on that anymore. No, not at all. But you know what? We're pushing ahead, and we're, we're making progress, and... It's always good to wake up with an agenda, and we have one today in we'll this episode. Do. Yep, and not so a hidden one, by the way. This we're is not hidden at all. Transparent. We're going to make it very transparent. You're absolutely right. So this is a new concept that we're going to run with today. We call it the fine print. So think of that in the context of maybe a contract that you've read and. You look at it and you glance through it and scan it and you think you understand what's in it until you read the fine print and yeah, you realize if you've uh, ever received medication ever, if you've ever received like even like something for like an itch, the the fine print on one of those things is like 90 pages long. The fine print. So yeah, so you know what brought this up for us was that you know, people refer to research. Everybody refers to research. We live in an yeah. evidence-based fitness world right now. Everybody wants to see the evidence. Well, um, yeah. So, what does the evidence <laughs> say to us? You know, I think for the most part, people just take what they see at face value, and maybe they shouldn't do that. And just because uh, something is stated up front or we read something at the end or a conclusion, it doesn't necessarily mean that's what's really in the paper and what information we can extract from it. So we want people to read the fine print. And that's what mm -hmm. we're going to do. We're going to get into the fine print on some of these studies and maybe bring out some information that people are unaware of. So this is going to be a lot of fun as we kind of dive into some really interesting research. Yeah, agreed. So 20, 30 years ago, if you wanted to uh, write a paper on something, if you wanted research, you may have had to go all the way back to the Dewey Decimal System and find, go to a library, pull out a card, find some book. And I did that, by the way. Yeah, and I, I, was, <laughs> I was at the tail end of that. And now yeah. on my phone, I get constant little updates. And oftentimes... That would drive um, me crazy, Gigi. Yeah, well, it, well, the fun part of the fun of doing this podcast is that I'm really um, I'm looking at all the topics we're discussing, but I really try to look at it through the lens of a layperson, someone that really mm -hmm. has no um, academic experience on this side, but just is you know curious and interested. So, and I'm I'm getting these updates even as we're talking. I see my phone lighting up, and so one update will be talk about multitasking. Yeah, <laughs> that's why I should probably shut this side off. But um, I'll get an update that will say study shows blah blah blah, and if I click on the thing, then it'll take me to basically, and uh, it's not even the study; it's it's a journalist's um, sort of condensed uh, impression interpretation, of the study. interpretation. Right, yeah. So that's yeah. one thing. But interspersed with that, one of the prompts I got here was. Uh, Experts detail why naps help you lose weight. So, oh, 
I like naps. I'm trying to lower my body fat. So I clicked on that. And that was a link to a personal trainer who had some perspective on naps. So because I'm interested, I Googled the person, found their credentials somewhere. And the only credential I could see that they're posting, and by the way, I have no idea where whether I can verify if that's accurate, just this is what they're posting, was a personal training certification that I took myself 20 years ago. And I can guarantee you, we didn't cover naps and we certainly didn't cover the neuroscience of naps. But come on, I want to take a nap (laughs) to lose weight. (laughs) But look, that's the, like to the lay person, you're just getting, you don't even have to search for information anymore. You are getting it rapidly, like minute by minute. And the the real need to do an episode like this is to just help people help themselves. And so we don't expect people to be writing their own scientific papers at the end of this, but we hope to to break it down and provide some insight and some tools so that even when you get bombarded with the things I'm talking about, you'll have a better way of just disseminating this information that's coming in to try to make sense of it and try to make some better decisions. Listen, at the very least, you know, hopefully when we're done with this, people will for a moment question the stuff that's coming across that way and not simply jump to conclusions and run out and try these things because some expert told them or even because some author on the paper whom they recognize is telling them something. Um, you know, there are some people that are very recognizable and their names are in print and we read these things. And unless you really understand the methods and what's going on in there, sometimes, you know, we can be misled in some ways. So I think this is a very important thing to do. And I think this is a great article that we're going to start with. But, you know, what should our listeners be thinking while we're going through this? Like, where do you want them to go with this as as we take them on this journey? Well, I hope the listeners will stick this one out and listen to the very end, because we know that you have read a study or you've spoken to someone about a study and that you've got questions about something you've heard somewhere. And so if you listen at the end, we're going to discuss a chance for you to actually be part of a future episode where you can let us know a study that you're curious about or interested in, and you can join us for a podcast where we'll break that study down and we'll we'll go over it. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. We want people to read things and then bring them up and let us, you know, let us deconstruct it and let us analyze it and see what's in there so that we can help people better understand what's going on. And so um, let's get started. Yep. So this is a, a really interesting paper, and it is called A Kinetic and Electromyographic Comparison of the Standing Cable Press and Bench Press. And the authors are Santana, Vera Garcia, and McGill. It was published in 2007 in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research. And we're going to provide the citation in our show notes. So when you uh, open this up, look at the show notes, you'll be able to see the citation and you can find this for yourself. Unfortunately, we can't provide you with the actual study Mm -hmm. that would violate copyright laws. So we're going to talk about what's in here, um, but you'll be able to find that study for yourself and then you can Mm -hmm. read it. So what we're going to do with this is let's talk first about how people actually typically read research? Mm -hmm. Like what is the process for many lay people when they're looking at research studies? What do they do? We're going to start with that. Um, Most people go right to the conclusions, Mm -hmm. by the way. So, you know, they'll read the abstract or they'll get some of the summary from the abstract and then jump right to the conclusion. I'm guilty of that. And then they say, yep, okay, we're done. And now we can run out and start applying all of this Mm -hmm. stuff. Um, so we're going to go through that process. We're going to going to start with the introduction and the abstract. We're going to pull some information out of that. We're going to go right to the conclusions of this study. And then we're going to start pulling the study apart. We're going to look at the methods. We're going to look at the results. And we're going to see if the conclusions are consistent with all of those things that make up this research, right? So that's what we're going to do. We already know what the title mm-hmm. is. So here's a basic question. Let's talk about this real quickly. The basic question that they're asking, if you think about the title, 
what are the differences in forces and muscle activation, muscle activation as determined by electromyography, EMG, between a bench press and a standing cable mm -hmm. press? So do you think that's a legitimate question? Absolutely, yeah. I think that's because uh, where this comes from is uh, that back then in 2007, a lot of this stuff was just sort of just burgeoning and transitioning from like a bodybuilding istic type of worldview in terms of strength and conditioning to okay we actually need to our strength and conditioning program to mimic more of what we're doing in athletics and on the field and sports so you know this was not the earliest study but this was on the earlier side of studies and those are totally legitimate questions to ask because yeah look so it you don't have to be an exercise science expert to see there's obvious differences between laying on your back doing a bench press and being a offensive lineman and pressing someone backwards as you're moving so very legitimate uh, purpose for the study, in my opinion. So you said obvious differences. We'll, we'll see if that holds <laughs> up, right? If the, if the obvious differences are actually real differences. Um, you know, and then, like, I asked this question. So is it legitimate? Absolutely. I agree with you. That's a legitimate question. Then I have to ask, why are they asking this? I think you already alluded to that. Um, this was in the height of functional training. That's when this paper was published. So... I think there's this implication that in a functional training paradigm, your maximum overall upper body strength may not be as important as some other factors. So I think that was one of the driving motivations behind this. And then the other part of this is core muscle activation, right? right? So they're looking at how the core is being activated in these different activities, because again, in 2007, core was a really big thing. As it, as so, it remains, by the way. As it remains. So um, there you go. So they're looking at, there's what they would consider a functional activity, which is the standing cable press, and a non-functional mm -hmm. activity, which is the bench press. And they want to see if there are differences in force output, but more importantly, whether that force output difference is meaningful. Mm -hmm. Like, Does it matter that you could produce all that much force? So that's why they're doing it. It's an interesting question. I think it's fair. So I'm going to kind of go right to their conclusions, right? So this is what people do. They see what the study is, and then they jump right to mm -hmm. the end, right? So let's read the last line and see what they okay. say. So from the abstract, what they say is the bench press emphasizes shoulder and chest activation and shoulder torque development, but the standing cable press relies on shoulder strength. However, it's more of a whole body stability that limits force generation. So it's the ability to stabilize while you're doing that. That's the limiting factor. And it doesn't necessarily matter that your upper body is strong. So when you read something like that, how do you think the readers are going to interpret that? Like, what is the conclusion they're going to jump well, to? Well, yeah, obviously, when you're standing and doing a press, whatever strength you can generate from doing a bench press doesn't really help you in the quote-unquote real world or in athletics. Or... Yeah, so I think the subliminal message here, by the way, is, you know what? Maybe you shouldn't be doing all those bench presses. Maybe you should be doing more of this standing cable stuff. If Yeah, so... if you were trying to create an effective argument against something like that, that's certainly a way you could write it that would help lay the groundwork for that. Yeah. And I would infer from that, that that's what they're telling me, right? So that it's, you know, maybe the bench press isn't helping me so much. And then this comes from their discussion to follow up with this idea, concern about the ability to use the majority of strength developed from traditional bench press during functional activities. So, yeah, you develop all the strength you want laying on your back, pushing a bar, but can you actually use it? And, you know, that's an interesting point, right? This is right out of their discussion. This is what they're saying. And they're saying, look, you could get as strong as you want, but it doesn't matter if you can't use that strength. So then why bother? Right. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll save what I'm thinking till we get later till we we start pulling things apart. But yeah, interesting way to summarize their data. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I don't think it's even a subtle implication anymore. I, I think they're coming right out in a bold face statement and saying, hey, look, standing cable press is going to focus on stability and core musculature. That comes directly from their discussion with limited activation of the shoulder muscles. Mm -hmm. So you know what? we don't need our shoulder muscles so much. We need to be doing this standing cable press. And so now that we sort of see 
the the big message that they're delivering. And by the way, most people are going to stop right there, right? That's it. They got the message, message received. Okay, forget the bench press. We're just going to do this other activity. Um, well, let's just continue with this and see what they did, how they did it, and then look at some of the numbers and then see if that message stands up. Cool. Yeah, that? I dig it. Okay, so give us one minute. We'll be right back and we're going to start talking about the methods. All right, we're back. We are looking at uh, a kinetic and electromyographic comparison of the standing cable press and bench press. We talked about the abstract, the introduction, the conclusions, what this study is about. Now it's time to look at the methodology uh, mm. so that we understand what they did and how they did it. Right. So PJ, before we even get into it, so when, for anyone that's listening that isn't familiar with reading studies, what, what, can you just quickly explain what the methods section should be in a paper like this? Yeah. So you know, when we think about methods in a research study, we need to organize the study so that we can get information or we can get the information that we need to answer our question. And so the methodology helps us to answer that question, but do it in a way that helps us avoid a lot of variables and confounding factors that could otherwise make the information sort of cloudy and indecipherable, but it can't itself influence the outcome. So we have to be very careful with our methods so that they, the methods themselves are not responsible for differences in the conditions that we're testing, but that they only help us to get information so that we can then make the comparison that we want to make. And so basically the method section just describes how they went about collecting this data, right? It explains the steps they took in order to, to collect the data. Well, yeah. And in this case, the methods, well, the methods will always tell you about the subjects, who they are, um, how old they were, how much they weigh, how tall they are. So the basic information about the subjects, in some cases, you want to know if the subjects were experienced or inexperienced in the tasks that were being performed. Sometimes it doesn't really matter. Um, we want to know what's being tested, in this case, a bench press and a standing cable press. So we need to understand how those two positions were set up. What are the conditions in which the subjects were doing those two exercises? How were they organized and arranged? How were their how were they positioned on those tasks? We need to know what kind of weight they were using or if that was part of the test. Um, we need to know what the testing sessions looked like. So when they came in, how were they tested? What did they do first? What was the sequence of events? So, and then ultimately we wanna know what specific measures they're looking at. We call them criterion measures. So what are the things that they're actually measuring? And so we need to understand that from the methodology. So that's all the information that you get from the methods. Okay, cool. So in this case, they, um, so they had 14 recreationally trained men. So the fact that they're recreational trained is probably a good population to use. It's just their familiarity with these exercises. So, you know, anytime we do a new exercise in a research study, if it's truly novel, there's a learning process that goes on. Mm -hmm. So the first time somebody does it, they're not going to be as good as the fourth time they do it. We mm -hmm. call that a learning effect. Well, in research, we want to get rid of that. We don't want that change that occurs from learning to influence the, the outcome because that's a false reading, right? If we see there's a difference over time, but that difference is simply due to the fact that they learned how to perform the skill, then that's not answering the question that we wanted, unless, of course, the question is how long does it take somebody to learn the task? Right. And that's a good uh, follow-up to when you said the um, in the methods why they do certain tasks. Because sometimes I think you can read a study and be like, well, why do they do that? Why didn't they do this? I feel like this would be a much better way. Well, it's because you're trying to minimize these variables. And if, the, if they were showing them 
some sort of standing cable press that they've never done before, even if they've got some sort of familiarity with it. But to your point, yeah, there's a learning effect and that's going to change the muscular orchestration, at least initially. Yeah, that's right. And, and look, the beauty of research is if you think they should have done it in a different way, then go after it. Go right, do it right. yourself, right? right? If you think that they were wrong in the way they did it, or if there's a better way to do it, go set up a study and do it. And that's the beauty of this. It's, you know, there's no right or wrong. What we do is we look at what people do and then we say, well, what if we did it this way? And that's fodder for new research. So that's the way the research process happens. But in this particular case, you know, we want to look what they did. What are the testing conditions? What are they measuring? And then let's look at the results that they got. Okay. Okay. So 14 subjects, do you think that's a reasonable amount for this type of study? Yeah. And the reason it's reasonable, I mean, people may say, well, you need 200 subjects. And, and the reason that 14 subjects is reasonable is because this is referred to as a repeated measures design. So what they did was they took the 14 people and they tested them on the bench press and they also tested them in the standing cable press. So it's the same people doing both exercises. We call that repeated measures as opposed to one group doing a bench press and another group doing mm -hmm. a standing cable press, then you need a lot more subjects. But when you're looking at the same people doing two different things, you don't need as many subjects. So 14 subjects is fine. Um, having all one gender, uh, males in this case, and you know, we, I don't wanna get into the whole gender ID thing, mm -hmm. but you know, in the case of research, it's the same. And so they don't have influences of multiple genders in here. So that's also going to help to eliminate some of the variability and get more consistency. So, you know, perfectly legitimate, good number of subjects. Um, now, one thing that's important in, in the subject data is body mass. And body mass is important in this particular study because it's used in some of the calculations. So what was the average body mass of those 14 subjects? About 78 kilograms. Okay, 78 kilograms. So we need to remember that because when they do certain calculations in this study, they're going to be really looking at body mass as a key value in that. So, all right. So the next thing is we have the subjects. What are they doing? The first thing they set up was the bench press. So this is a bench press, people. This is pretty standard. Um, laying on their back, their head was supported, their feet were flat on the ground, and they were in a standard supine position, again, laying on their back, and the one key variable here is that all subjects had their hands spaced equidistant from the center. So what does that mean? So when they, when they set up under the bar, you find the middle of the bar and where they place their hands, their left hand and right hand were the exact same distance from the center of the bar so that the bar was balanced from side to side. Okay. And then the next one was the standing cable press. And they were using something which they referred to as the ideal mechanical position. So mm -hmm. that's right there in the methodology. It's an ideal mm -hmm. mechanical position. What does that mean? It's standing upright. Okay, so when you're doing this cable press, you're standing up straight in a tandem stance. So tandem means you have one foot in front of the other, right, aligned. Their, their feet were at hip width, but they had one foot forward and one foot back they normalize the distance between their feet by leg length. So mm -hmm. basically, regardless of how tall the subject was, the, the four and a half width of that stance, the four and a half distance of that stance was normalized for all subjects. Mm -hmm. Very good thing to do. Um, they, the load on the cable, the cable was running parallel to the ground at the level of the shoulder. Mm -hmm. So, okay. And only their pressing arms, only their arms were allowed to move forward of their feet. So in other words, they didn't want the body to move forward of the feet mm -hmm. while people were doing the pressing. Only the arms could go out forward. Right. Okay. So those are the two conditions. We had a bench press. We had a standing cable press. And now we got to see what are they measuring. So first thing they did was call 1RM testing. Right. So one repetition max. What they're trying to do is find the maximum strength uh, or maximum load that they could move once for each of those. So for each position, they say the load was progressively increased until their one arm was reached. And mm -hmm. then they gave them two to five minutes of rest in between. So if they didn't, let's say they did three repetitions on one load. Well, that's not the one RM. 
Right. If they do another one right away, they're going to get fatigued. Fatigue can be a factor. So they have to give them some rest in between those attempts. And so they gave them two to five minutes and then they gave them a new attempt. Um, that was really the, the bench press. And then for the standing cable press, they did something kind of interesting. They put a load cell in the handle, in the cable. They attached the load cell at the end of the cable on the carabiner and then attached the handle to the load cell. So that when they were doing this standing cable press, that load cell was measuring the tension in the cable. So they were so, able to get a one RM out of that. So a, lo uh, a, a load cell is like a strain gauge, basically, right? That's right. Similar? It's a force transducer. Yeah. So it measures the force output. Is there a simple way to someone that may not be familiar with that? Uh, something like, um, you know, if you go, uh, I guess, basically, like if, if you go to the fish market and you want to measure the weight of fish, that's that's a type of strain gauge, right? Like the, the basic scale. Yeah, hanging scale of any yeah. kind, whether it's fish or fruit. Yeah, you stick the, the fruit in there and the scale, that's a strain gauge. These are a little bit more sophisticated. We're not using a right. fish scale here. We're using a digital, <laughs> digital instrument. Um, but yes, it's right. the, you know, that's the concept and it, and it works. It's very consistent. It's reliable. Uh, we can use it. So it's actually a very good tool to use in this case. And then they did this EMG, the electromyography. So they're looking at the muscle activity as measured by EMG sensors. And they put these electrodes on uh, rectus abdominis, internal obliques, external obliques, the erectors, so the spine erectors, latissimus dorsi, pectoralis major, and anterior deltoid, right? Mm -hmm. So they, this, what are they measuring? They're measuring core. They're measuring the lats is, you know, back, pecs, anterior deltoid, shoulders. So those are the muscle groups that they're measuring. And so some of the pressing muscles and some of the core stabilizing muscles. There you right? go. I mean, core, and that's what uh, they're that's what they're looking at, right? The difference. They even said it in in the introduction, right? They're looking at these standing postural stability challenges, mm -hmm. core activation, and then looking at the shoulder musculature and seeing, okay, well, what's going on with that? Um, and so, what's interesting though is when you look at their methods. They have electrodes, EMG electrodes on all of the core muscles, left and right. Mm -hmm. So they're looking at both sides of the body. They only put the shoulder, peck and shoulder sensors on the right side. Interesting. So, so that's kind of interesting. Like, why would they look at all the core muscles on both sides, but only look at the shoulder, the peck and shoulder muscles? on the right side. Well, if we, if we could afford a good producer right now, you'd hear a bump, bump, bump. <laughs> well, we'll get to that in a second. Um, now, what they do is called an MVIC. MVIC stands for Maximal Volitional Isometric Contraction. So this is a way to normalize EMG activity. So what you do is you put someone in a position and you have them contract as hard as they can isometrically. So whoever is administering the test is going to, let's say if they're looking at the pec, they raise the arm so that it's parallel to the floor. They bend the elbow so that it's, you know, slightly bent, they said. And then what the practitioner does is, or the tester does is they put their hand on the inside of the performer's elbow and the performer has to try to horizontally flex their shoulder as hard as they possibly can. That's an isometric contraction. They measure the electrical activity while that's going on. And then they use that as the baseline for all future activities. So if they're looking at the standing cable press or the bench press, they're going to say, well, what is the amount of activity during those exercises compared to this baseline value that they've established? So that's right. an MVIC. And so they're saying, theoretically, this is the most amount of EMG activity you should be able to get out of these tissues. And so everything you do, we're going to rate that comparative to that. Yeah. So it's not necessarily always the most, because what we discover when we do these kinds of measures is that when you actually measure the activity when people are moving, it's not atypical to see percentages greater than 100%. So if I do an isometric, test and then I'm moving isotonically, I'm moving and I measure it, it wouldn't be unusual to see 125% of the baseline. So 
the isometric test doesn't give you maximum. It just gives you a baseline value against which you can measure other things. All right. Uh, but keep in mind, when it came to pec major and anterior deltoid, it was just the right side. Mm -hmm. The last thing that they did was what they call the predictive biomechanical model. All right. Um, for our listeners, we're going to put that model into the show notes. So it'll be illustrated and you'll see exactly how it works. And basically what they're doing is they're asking the question, if I'm doing this standing cable chest press, how much load can I put on the cable before I lose balance and fall over backwards? Remember, I am in this ideal mechanical position, which is standing vertical with my feet in a tandem arrangement. Mm -hmm. How much load can I put on the cable? And by the way, listeners, you all know this. If you're doing a standing cable chest press and you have too much weight on it, it's going to pull you over backwards, mm -hmm. right? And so their question is, how much weight can someone do before they get pulled over backwards? And they use the computer in order to solve this thing. So mm -hmm. they're looking at a two-arm cable press using two arms. How much force can they create before they have to before they lose their balance? Mm -hmm. So um, they input into a computer limb limb lengths and mass and all that stuff, and then they type in loads and then there's a model that predicts how much you can use before that all those segments would have to move yeah so it's not it so the the input into the system basically is the leg length right so leg length and body mass mm -hmm. and that's it that's all you need to put in there and you know you need to know the height of the cable above the floor right so if they know the height of the cable they know the height of the performer so they know where the center of mass is because you mm -hmm. need to know where the center of mass is um, leg length so that you could figure out what the base of support is. And then the rest of it is basically a balance equation. Mm -hmm. uh, once again, we're going to put that in our show notes. Mm -hmm. So our, you know, anyone who wants to see it, they'll be able to see it because we illustrate it for them. Um, that's what they're doing. So they're using that to predict the maximum amount of load that somebody can tolerate while they're doing this exercise. Mm -hmm. Okay. So those are the methods. And in two seconds, we're going to come back and we're going to tell you what they found. Awesome. All right. So we've taken everyone through sort of the intro, the abstract. We've talked about the methods. Now we need to present the results. What do they find and what do they say about what they found? Because I think that's really interesting. So the first thing is, let's just look at this predictive biomechanical model because they didn't even have to test anybody. They just ran a computer simulation. And mm -hmm. what they discovered was that when you're standing up in that ideal mechanical position, you're limited to about 40% of your body weight before mm -hmm. you fall over backwards. Mm -hmm. All right, so you think about it, you're standing up, you're pushing these cables forward, any more than 40%, according to that model, it's going to cause you to fall. Mm -hmm. That limits how much you can do, right? The limiting factor isn't how strong you are. The limiting factor is how much you can stabilize against in that posture. Okay. And I think uh, this is an important uh, caveat to bring up here, is that that would be the same for Hulk Hogan versus Pee Wee Herman. Just anyone in that position you're going to be limited to about 41% of your body weight. Well, you need to be able to bench press at least 40% of your body weight, right. right? That's the minimum. Given that, right. But if you could bench press 40% of your body weight or 1,000% of your body weight, it doesn't matter because once you exceed 40% of your body weight, you're falling over. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter how strong you are, right? That's not the limiting factor here. But it's important to understand that because that's what they're claiming here is like, when you're doing functional activities, your upper body strength in this case probably doesn't matter because that something else is going to limit you anyway. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, here's where we get into actual data. They looked at a mean single arm one repetition maximum for the standing cable press. All right. So when they put that load cell in there to measure the force in the standing cable press, 
it was a single arm. You're using the right arm, which is now telling us why they were doing the electrodes on the right pec and right anterior deltoid because the strain gauge was on the right side. And they measured 1RM at 26 kilograms, which was actually 33% the body weight. So their computer-based biomechanical model was off by 7%. Mm-hmm. The actual was 33%. Mm-hmm. And by the way, the illustration that we put in our show notes, which we basically did on the back of a bar napkin, <laughs> uh, shows that the limiting load is 33% of body weight. So yeah, I think we were closer than that. Um, yeah, so if this is true, you know, it's you're you you're limited so there that's what they're saying your upper body strength doesn't really play into this the mean bench press 1rm was 95% of body weight not 33% of body weight mm-hmm. which is about 77 kilograms so i think it's 73 70, i'm 70. sorry 73 you're absolutely right 73 kilograms so, um, yeah, you're able to put up a lot more load when you're doing a bench press than when you're doing a standing cable press. And then the EMG, right? So what they say was there was statistically significant differences in EMG among muscle sites within each exercise. So here's what they determined. And this is really fascinating stuff. In mm-hmm. the bench press the anterior deltoid was 117% of that MVIC, of Mm -hmm. that baseline value. And the pec major was 98, 99% of that. They said that it's much more active than most of the trunk muscles. Again, they're saying that the upper body muscles were more active than the trunk muscles. There was some important level of trunk activation, trunk muscle activation, but it was somewhere between 72 and 78% MVIC. Mm-hmm. So clearly the shoulder muscles were working more than the abdominal muscles. Whereas right. in the standing cable press, they said that the, now this is interesting, the right anterior deltoid, they said was at 121%. Yeah. So and let's just connect those dots again really quickly. Their results demonstrated that in the, in the standing cable press, 26 kilograms or 33% of body weight was used. Right. In the bench press, uh, 73 kilograms or 95% of body weight was was generated. And then when you look at the EMG values on the standing cable press, where you're using less load, you're actually seeing higher EMG values. Well, that's a really strange thing, isn't it? So Mm -hmm. let's just repeat that for clarity. For the standing cable press, they were working at 26 kilograms for the bench press they were at 73 kilograms 73 kilograms by the way it was for a bilateral bench press even if you cut that in half and you still have 30 you know 37 kilograms against 26 kilograms Mm -hmm. and yet in the standing cable press they're saying that the shoulder activity was greater Mm -hmm. all right so there's a problem there if mm-hmm. you're working against a greater load and you have a lower level of muscle activation, something fishy is happening here, mm-hmm. right? And they don't really talk about that, that <laughs> in the study, um, but there's something in there that we need to pay attention to. And then um, they're saying that the uh, pectoralis major was 60, and the standing cable press was 60%, and that was not different from the left internal oblique or the left latissimus dorsi. So they're saying that the left internal oblique and lats were just as active as the shoulder muscles, whereas in the bench press, those abdominal muscles were not nearly as active as the shoulder muscles. So Mm -hmm. the standing cable press is a better activity if you want to engage your core musculature, okay? Right. So, you know, what are they really trying to say here? I mean, I think it's obvious to me, but, you know, they're, they're kind of highlighting the fact that you're getting more core muscle activation from the standing cable press, less 
relative shoulder, although this anterior deltoid number seems way out of whack compared to everything else that's going on. And they don't talk about that in the study, which is really astonishing to me that they leave that out. Yeah, it is interesting because, you know, again, if, if you had a specific agenda, you could say, hey, look, if you want to actually generate more muscular activity, but put less load on a joint, do it this way. And by the way, it's completely superior in terms of core stabilization. So, and I'm not, obviously we don't know their intentions, but if, if your agenda was to, to progress that notion, they could have easily taken that data and, and said something along those lines, but they, they chose to not, um, discuss anything about the higher activity in the anterior deltoid. Or they maybe they just didn't see this and, and think that it was significant. But when I see that, when I say, well, wait a minute, you've got significantly less load, but more muscle activity, something is happening here. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I think the natural tendency at this point, when somebody's looking at a study and they're seeing the results and they've read the abstract and they've probably already jumped to the discussion and the conclusion, they're saying, okay, that's it. Forget the bench press we're just going to do this standing cable press because I get more core muscle activation. I don't need strong upper body in order to be able to, you know, do these functional activities. Got it. Message received. I'm going to go and follow this. And I'm saying, eh, wait a minute. There's right. some problems here <laughs> that we have to deal with before we can accept that as face at face value. Right. right? The, the fine print, so to speak. The fine print. So now let's look at the fine print because that's where we're going to start to see things. Yeah, and let's let have some fun. This is the fun stuff. So let's start with the bench press. Number one, they said in the methods that everyone's hands were spaced equidistant from the center, but they didn't say how wide they were from the center. And it doesn't say anywhere in the methods how wide apart the hands were spaced. Now, that's going to have a very significant effect, not only on how much load you can move, but on the EMG activity in the shoulder, Mm -hmm. right? So as your hands get wider and wider, it's going to change the level of activation or as they get closer and closer. So even though they were spaced equidistant from the center, there wasn't anything in here that normalized the width of their grip. You know, basically shoulder and elbow alignment, nothing in there. So that could absolutely affect the outcomes. Remember we said when you asked me about methods, I said before that your methods have to be designed so that you can get the information you want without creating the information. Well, when you fail to normalize the width of the grip in a bench press, you're in fact creating information. So we don't know if any of these results were due to the fact that there was no standard grip width on the bench press. So just like they normalized the step length in the standing cable press, they should have normalized to some degree the the grip on the bar. Absolutely. And they didn't do it. So people could have, you know, from trial to trial, they could have had a different position. Just think really quickly, if you lay down on a bench, if you had your arms out really wide versus if you had your hands, you know, a lot of times people do what they call like a close grip bench press. So typically they're doing this stuff because they're trying to get more or less tricep activity. And your triceps, when both hands are fixed to a bar, can can significantly influence your ability to push the bar off your chest. So we're going to give you better specific notes on that, but just that the the bar position can influence what other muscles and joints can help you move this load. In addition to that, the way they set up the cable press is the cable was running basically from the hand through the elbow back to the cable machine. So that cable was at some distance to the shoulder. So again, that's a, this mm-hmm. is about torque and biomechanics, mm-hmm. but that's different from a bench press. When you do a bench press and your hands are wherever they are, when you push up against the bar, you're actually creating forces that go slightly to the outside, mm-hmm. not straight up. And there's a study, we're also citing it in our show notes. It'll be there. It's Duffy and Chalice. 
they did a biomechanical analysis of the bench press and they found out that when you push the bar, you're not pushing, the force isn't being directed straight up, it's being directed up into the outside, which actually means the line of force is going much closer to the shoulder. And mm -hmm. therefore the amount of torque loading on the shoulder in a bench press is less than a cable press. So imagine, you know, I think most people have experienced this. Let's say you could bench press a hundred pounds. That doesn't mean you could do dumbbell bench press with the fifties, <laughs> right? We all know you can't do that. Exactly. And it's because of the biomechanics. Some people think it's because shoulder stabilization is not related to shoulder stabilization. It's the biomechanics. The line of force is going way outside the shoulder in a dumbbell press and a cable press, which creates significantly more torque loading on the shoulder. And that's going to activate those muscles. And by the way, that also explains why the anterior deltoid was greater than the pec when they tested that. It's the biomechanics of the exercise, not the fact that they're laying down or standing up. It's not related to those things. Right. So it's, and we should, I think, clarify that a little bit more. So what's really great about cables is they can actually show you a line of force. That's Unfortunately, right. it's harder to see on a bench press. You kind of have to imagine that as I'm pushing up, I'm also pushing out on the bar and that, that line of force, instead of, if I had a cable, instead of it going directly over my forearm, it would fall in line somewhere between like my shoulder and my elbow. Yeah. The farther the cable is from the joint, the more the joint load is. Mm -hmm. So you're right when you're doing that cable press and you're in the middle of the range of motion, let's say the cable's running down the length of the forearm for the most part. And, you know, if you're humorous, shoulder to elbow is a foot or even more than a foot, then that cable's a foot away from your shoulder. Mm -hmm. And so it creates a huge torque at the shoulder joint. That is what's causing greater activation in those muscles. Mm -hmm. Not the fact that somebody's standing up doing this exercise or laying down doing the exercise. It's the biomechanics. Those biomechanics were not considered in the methodology. And in fact, when they set up the people in the cable, and I really encourage people to get this study and look at the images uh, that they provide. When they're doing the cable press, their shoulder is fully abducted. Their arm is mm -hmm. parallel to the ground. But when they're doing the bench press, they're not abducted that far. Mm -hmm. So these are things, these subtle differences in positions that can create significant differences in the criterion measures, in the measured values. And so it's very hard to accept some of these findings unless they're accounting for these differences and they're not. Moving on. They said that there was a difference in trunk rotator activity, right? The rotary muscles in the trunk were activated differently between these two conditions. But what's interesting is if you look at the photographs, again, you look at the photos in the study, they show you the starting and end positions for the cable press. It's very clear that the subjects are rotating their trunk, even though they weren't allowed to for their bodies to go in front of their toes. They still did rotate. Well, they're not rotating when they're on the bench. So, yeah, if I want to do some kind of rotational thing while I'm on the bench, then I would see more rotary activity. So they were comparing a standing activity that involved a little bit of trunk rotation mm -hmm. to one that got no trunk rotation. That's going to create a difference. Mm -hmm. All right. It gets even better. <laughs> so the interesting thing that I found, and there's some really fascinating numbers in here, but one of the things that is very clear on the bench press, when they're looking at the core muscle activity, the main muscles in and around the trunk. So we're, mm -hmm. we're adding the latissimus dorsi to that. Lats, internal obliques, rectus abdominis. If you look at the bench press here, you had symmetry side to side. So the level of activation of those muscles was the same on either side. The lats were both active at 60% MVIC. The internal obliques were both at 50%. The rectus abdominis on either side, 30%. So there was symmetry. You're on the bench mm -hmm. and you're pushing and you have this symmetrical value. But then you look at the standing cable chest press. The left latissimus was at 60%. The right latissimus was at 30%. Mm -hmm. The left internal oblique was at 70%. 
the right internal oblique was at 30%. Wait a minute. So same Why muscle on either side, sides, very different one values. was working Double. twice as much, yeah. if not more than twice as much as the opposite side. So what could what, create that condition? What is causing that? <laughs> I mean, if you're according to their predictive biomechanical model, this two handed cable press, I mean, you should be symmetrical. Yeah, you're in a mm -hmm. tandem stance, but everything's stable. Why is it in this standing cable chest press, you have muscles on the left side of the body that are working twice as hard as muscles on the right side of the body? What is accounting for that, Gigi? Well, we should, again, if we had a good producer, we'd cue the mushroom cloud sound. But the <laughs> fact is that it was a single arm press versus a bilateral press when you're on the bench. So that's what happened here is they were comparing an asymmetrical load to a bilateral load. And so... If I've got a cable in my right arm and I've got nothing in my left arm to counterbalance it, what's going to happen is that if I choose to stay still, which were the directions given to the subjects, that everything that can, because the cable is going to try to rotate me to my right side, the load going through that, just imagine everybody, if you're in that stance, that just imagine what the cable is trying to do. If it's coming from behind you, it's trying to pull you back towards where the cable is coming from. So that's going to create rotation to your right. So everything that can rotate you to the left is going to activate higher. So you can just maintain a neutral stance just so you can you can counterbalance the load trying to pull you to the right. So that's, that's right. And where, it's, yeah. it's not just the cable pulling you back, by the way. It's the reactive force. So as you push your right arm forward, they did this cable standing cable press with just the right arm. And by the way, that's why they only put sensors, electrodes right. on the right anterior deltoid and the right, right pec because they were only measuring the right arm in the cable. So when you push your right arm forward, there's a reactive force which is going backwards and that's also trying to rotate you to the right. Mm -hmm. So you have to stabilize against that and therefore, your left internal oblique, your left latissimus dorsi, those muscles are locking down in order to stabilize you against this rotation which is being created. Mm -hmm. What's really interesting here, though, is if you look, for example, at the right internal oblique on the standing cable press, they recorded 30%. Of mm -hmm. MVIC, but the right internal oblique on the bench press was 50%. Yeah, interesting. And by the way, you mentioned there actually was a little bit of some um, rotation, some trunk rotation. Yeah, on the right side. So here's the interesting thing if you look at the bench press values that of the trunk musculature and take out the fact that they were doing one arm you actually see more abdominal muscle activity in the <laughs> bench press than yep. you do in the standing cable press. Okay, so that I think is another mind blower. So let's just walk through that really quick because I think most people would say like, how the heck are my core muscles working really hard when I'm doing a bench press? Because I'm focused on my upper body and chest. So as I'm doing any sort of pressing activity, the fibers that are attached to my rib cage of my pec fibers that are attached to my rib cage are trying to, they're pulling themselves closer to where it attaches on my, my humerus, on my arm. That's creating a lot of pressure in my rib cage. So the ab muscles have to work really hard to counteract all the stress I'm putting on the pec muscles. So if I'm generating a lot of load, or if I'm generating a lot of force because I'm moving against a lot of load in a bench press, I need a lot of ab, I need a lot of core activity to counterbalance that so that my 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 rib cage stays level yeah so you're stabilizing the rib cage because the pecs attached to the ribs mm -hmm. so you have to stabilize the ribs so that the pecs can actually do the work across the shoulder and the so, more i do yeah the more i press the more they have to work so here's the funny thing here's the irony here if you want to get your abs engaged and work your shoulder muscles mm -hmm. don't do a standing cable press do a bench press yeah, <laughs> because that's actually going to activate your core muscles and your shoulder muscles. The more load you lift on the bench, the more your core muscles get active. Yeah. It's a very simple thing. Yeah. 
So this study here is like, yeah, there's this all this stuff about the standing position and greater core muscle activation. The reality here, the true finding here is that if you were to do an asymmetrical load, which is what they did, standing cable press with one arm, sure, you're going to create a rotational torque around the trunk and that's going to activate your muscles. Mm -hmm. They could have done that, by the way. They could have done that if they wanted to really look at the difference between a standing press and a bench press. They could have had the person doing a bench press with one arm in a dumbbell and compared mm -hmm. that to a standing cable press with one arm in a cable. Mm -hmm. Now you're looking at the difference between the standing position and the bench position, mm -hmm. but they didn't do that. They right. created a bilateral condition for the bench press and a unilateral condition for the cable press. And they said, oh, look what we found. Well, of course, that's what they found. So they didn't see the difference between two postural sets. They saw the difference between a bilateral exercise and a unilateral exercise. And by the way, I could have told them what would happen. You don't need to do a research study to figure that one out. So... It's really interesting that unless you get into the methods, unless you really start to you know, lift the skirts and look and see what's underneath all of this stuff, if you just take it at face value, you could be in trouble because this is not what we're seeing here. If you want to work your core, work your core. If you want to um, work your upper body, work your upper body. But if you're telling people don't do a bench press because you're going to get more functionality out of this standing press, you know, I don't know. I think that's questionable. And I have one last question I'm going to throw at you because yeah. we started to talk about it earlier. Why is it that that position for the standing cable press, what makes that the ideal position? <laughs> Great. I'm glad we circled back to that. So here's what I would say to our listeners. Uh, try this yourself or just position yourself near a cable press for 10 minutes next time you go to the gym and watch the next guy without any instruction. Watch what they do with their body. And by the way, not just this person, what every single person will do as the load increases, and you've done this yourself for sure, is that you lean forward. You lean forward into the load. So if you are going to say that something is an ideal um, posture, I think that at least a better way of doing it would be like, well, what is the position that every person is going to take in order to accomplish this task most effectively? Yeah, so that's exactly the point. So what they're calling an ideal mechanical position is actually far from ideal. It's the worst mechanical position because you can't st stabilize yourself. If you are going to absorb a force, if you're an offensive lineman and there's a defensive end coming at you, you're going to stand yeah. up straight. How many stand perfectly straight? Yeah, yeah I'm going to stand yeah. perfectly straight. That's, no, that's <laughs> not ideal. What I'm going to do is I'm going to move my center of mass as close to the front edge of my base of support as I can, which actually makes me much more stable in absorbing that force, which is pushing me backwards. The ideal position is one in which we're leaning forward, which, by the way, we also will illustrate in our show notes. So we'll show you what the real ideal position looks like so what would have been a good follow-up study for you on this like for them to prove this whatever their hypothesis was let's say that they their focus here is saying that just you really if you're going to do any sort of standing pressing activity I, I i guess what they're saying is that you should really just focus on strengthening your core but what would have been a good follow-up study for to to help them like further that hypothesis so the question really for me is, look, if you're claiming that one thing is better than another, the question is better at what? And mm -hmm. in order to determine that, you need to do a training study. You need to do a real legitimate, you know, 12-week crossover design. I mean, it gets very complicated, but that's the way to, to test this thing out because it's well, not about the MC activity. Okay, well, let's say simply they had like an instrumented tackling dummy or something, and you're looking at the ability of college offensive linemen to be able to push this thing forward with a certain amount of force. So that could be something in a training study where they could have one group just focusing on bench press, one group focusing on the standing cable press. You could have before and after measures of how hard or how fast they can push this dummy. So something like that. Yeah, and then what I would do is called a crossover. So what you do is you train one group, you know, you train them on each modality for six weeks and then you test them and then you do a two week washout where mm -hmm. they do nothing for two weeks and then they switch and they train on the opposite modality and then they do mm -hmm. it again. And you mm -hmm. see 
now you have the same subjects working on both, but they cross over and you get to see which one of these has a greater training effect. Mm. That to me is really what ultimately matters. It's not whether I can show more muscle activity. It's whether what I'm doing contributes to some outcome that is measurable. And so, you know, we need to be very careful about things like this um, and not get caught in these interpretations that don't necessarily stand up to scrutiny. But I think um, with that, I think we pretty much covered it and made the point. So where do we go from here? Well, so if you like what we did in this episode, so here's the payoff. We know that you have questions of your own on studies or something someone told you or you got some sort of uh, message on your phone about some study. So we want to hear from you. So go to our Instagram page. It is at uh, Fitness for Consumption. Message us. Tell us about a study that you would like us to break down and go through. And we are going to do that. We are going to invite you on to talk about why you're interested in that particular study. And then we'll go over it together to break it down and answer any questions you might have. So it's a great opportunity for you to work with Professor and Dr. Paul Juris to really, uh, as we said here, go through the fine print on a study with a qualified expert. <laughs>